The following podcast on the Your Own Pay Podcast Network will contain adult content. Listener discretion is advised. More information about this episode can be found at yourownpay.com. Hey, bro, let's get into this thing. It's Demasi and Michael just talking tech. Start with the Y scale, man. So as... Uh, wait, we haven't even started the show. Wait, are we starting the show? Is yeah. this the show? I think this might yeah, just yeah, we'll, be the we'll show. We'll just jump right, right, right into it. I'll do, some, I'll do some cleaning up with the editing, and, and we'll get creatively into it. So starting with the Wise scale, it's a 28 – it's advertised as a $20 scale, but there's $8.95 shipping. And if you go to Amazon and you order it off of Amazon, which I did not. I ordered it directly from Wise. The scale price is $28.95. So instead of saying the $20 scale, I'm going to say the $28.95 scale, which still is not bad for what you ultimately get. And that is a Bluetooth connected smart scale. We've had it since Monday. If you head on over to yourownpay.com forward slash DM 49, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So if you head on over to yourownpay.com forward slash DM 49, I will include a unboxing video that Nicholas and I did. Uh, it's not the most uh, clear unboxing video, but we did uh, go through it. Nicholas read the little sticker that was on it, uh, gave him some reading time, and then he got distracted by the bubble wrap, which is typical of a 10-year-old boy. Uh, so that there will be that video that I'll put up there uh, because I need to start getting back into YouTube, and that was my plan is to use that video to get my YouTube going again. Recorded on the Pixel 3 using Android 11. My initial thoughts between for the Wise scale, I think, didn't I text you, Demasi, was this is underwhelming or something? Uh, I think that was yeah, like the words yeah. that I used. Uh, and the more I use it and the more I become familiar with the way it laid out. So let me start from the beginning. When you order from wise.com, you can set up an account that you can track your shipping information from. That account is the same account that you use to sign in to Wise. I, for some reason, was thinking it was a different account. So I went to set up a new account. It's like, You're, you already have an account. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I'll use one password and log into my wise.com account, which is the same account. That's perfect. Unfortunately, what you run into is several unlabeled buttons over at yourownpay.com slash DM49. I'll also paste in the description that I sent to Wise about the unlabeled buttons and what I was able to discuss. Now, since I started contacting Wise and I have not heard anything back from them, side note, if you email their dev email that they have on Google Play, they say, we're sorry, this is an unmonitored email address and you must go to our support page to contact us. Kind of frustrating. There are some unlabeled buttons and I set up my profile on the Wise app with Mallory's assistance. For example, I could not enter in if... Uh, what year I was born. And when she went to take it over, she said, Hey, Michael, since when did you become a female? And I'm like, what? No, no, that's not what I meant to check because it was an unlabeled button. Uh, so there's a lot of unlabeled buttons that kind of make it difficult. And again, this is on the Android side of things. I can't speak to iOS yet that make it difficult to set up the scale on your own. I do like that. It'll track your weight and you can push that data into Google fit. Once you find the proper unlabeled button, by the way, over at the show notes, I do give you that information of where to find that button. Uh, and then you, what I do like about it, because we, my mother passed away in 2012, right after her 40th birthday, because of a uh, heart condition. We don't know exactly what the heart condition was, but her heart pretty much stopped. 
And Andrew was diagnosed with a, a slight issue with his heart that prevented him from doing sports for some of this school year. Uh, sounds like things have, have straightened up and I, I can't give you exact names, but needless to say, has me a little thinking about my heart and are you working right and everything like that. So the scale, the primary reason why I wanted to pick it up is to be able to accessibly get my weight and see how much I weigh uh, for a potential campaign of losing weight in the near future. Second thing, that was an added benefit is it will give me my heart rate data um, and tell me how many beats per minute I my heart is beating at. And then it will also, once you have it all set up properly, drop that data into Google Fit. Because right now I don't have a wearable. I haven't found an accessible wearable technology. So that that became slightly concerning and something that I wanted to explore is being able to keep track of my weight and keep track of my heart data. There's a lot of other information that it gives you. And it's pretty nice for 28 bucks. If they could fix these unlabeled buttons, it would be even better. But I don't know of an accessible bathroom scale for under 30 bucks. Do you? Not one that I've heard of. No, uh, the probably closest thing that I have seen is not really a smart scale. It's just a scale that will talk. So when you step on it, it tells you what the weight is but that's it yeah i was gonna say like the the big thing with picking up the y scale is the fact that you wanted a smart scale uh, that could push data into the health uh, google fit and not have to pay 150 dollars or more for it because most of the smart scales out there are rather pricey uh, that is the one good thing about wise is they're uh their products tend to be fairly cheap, but well built. Like I haven't heard anybody complain about, and you can tell me this since you have to scale now, like I've, but I haven't heard anyone complaining about like their build quality, like it feels crappy or it breaks easily or anything like that. But what are your thoughts on like just the, the build quality of the scale itself? Does it feel like it's going to last or does it feel like, yeah. you know? Yeah, it feels like it'll last. And as we outlined in the video, um, <laughs> I was opening the box and under the scale, it was a box uh, inside of the box that was the four AAA batteries that I needed. And I'm like, oh, wait, it comes with batteries. And Nicholas was like, that's impressive or something like that. Because as you and I both know, often you may get something that needs batteries and there's no batteries included. So I was expecting to have to dig out some AAA batteries. So mm. I'll give him credit for that. And the build quality seems to be pretty well. Uh, we'll, we'll give it a couple of more, um, a couple more weeks and make sure it's still around. Cause you know, 10, 12 and 13 year old boys can be a little rough on stuff. The other thing that I want to mention before we either move on or continue talking about this is if you can't get the heart rate data. So if it keeps saying unable to get heart rate or please try again, something like that, rotate your scale by 90 degrees because, um, it, if apparently your feet have to be on the sensors that are in there for it to get your heart rate, it can't just guess that information. Imagine that. Uh, so if you're not getting readings, then that is something. And then remember, you have to be using bare feet. You can't have socks or anything on because it can't get your heart rate through socks. Makes sense. But yeah, pretty happy with it. I did look at some of their bulbs because I'm interested in those. Um. We're renting right now, and in our house that we're renting, they have a very interesting lighting setup for a majority of the house, and the lights are the light 
bulbs themselves are built into the electrical system. So it's not like a bulb that you can twist out. Um, so that is not something we can do at this time. But when we buy or rent again, depending on what we're doing, uh, then we may look at them. Or Mallory may convince me to pick her up a lamp and put one of the bulbs in there to just try it out. But right now, I don't know how efficient an Android user using the Wise app would be unless they can get these buttons labeled. Yeah. Is there, isn't there a screen recording feature in Android? I think so. I've not. I had it in my notification shape, but I never actually got around to trying it out uh, before I restored the phone. And, you know, as I told you before we actually started the show, I have not yet finished setting it up because I really don't want to have to type in my stupid long password <laughs> for uh, my Google account. Understandable. So, uh, the other thing is, is with Android 11, they have put the home controls on your power screen. So if you hold the lock button, you get access to home controls and if the wise bulbs would integrate with the google home which i think it does then that could be an alternative way to access that but I, again i don't have any so i can't verify that yeah they do uh, i believe the only thing they don't currently integrate with is home kit well, I'm pretty certain they work with Alexa they and the Google Home. Yeah, I am probably going to pick up some of their bulbs because one Tia wants me to replace the light bulbs in the kitchen anyway because the bulbs she asked for, she's like, well, actually, they're kind of too harsh. Hmm. And there's also a Google Home in the kitchen. Uh, so good deal you mentioned that. See, you just helped Tia get new light bulbs quicker because it's like, I'll just go ahead and buy some wise bulbs now because I can play with them with the Google Home. <laughs> Android 11, you haven't got your Android device set up yet. Have you heard anything about Android 11 yet? I listened to this week's uh, All About Android, so that would have been published on mm -hmm. June 16th. I did listen to that, I think last night, actually. So I heard there, you know, the little bit that Jason had to say about it, because I think he may be, no, uh, Flo may have it too. But anyway, I heard, heard a bit of their conversation about it. So basically what I know, uh, not having looked at it yet, are the things that pretty much everybody else knows, like they've moved home controls into your, your power button hold. So you have a couple of new things there you have the shutdown options and all of that but then if you swipe over you have home controls and you also can swipe over to get to yep. your google wallet uh set up there and then they have done something different to the way volume controls work or audio settings work so i think it's now a little widget that sits in the notification center is that, is that right so from my understanding and i have not found this nor have i played with it, another blind individual who said he did find it and and really enjoys it you can it feels like i'm easter egg hunting uh you can pull up in the notification screen and at the top of the notifications where your media playing is so let's say we're listening to pocket cast and that could be why is i've never expanded that that pocket cast notification uh you can control okay i'm listening to this on bluetooth right now i want to swap it over to my phone speaker instead of having to disconnect your bluetooth and then start playback again uh you can just hit that button and reroute that audio i presume that will be if not already an option to cast that audio to other home connected speakers 
uh, if you can't already. So you can start playback with your Bluetooth and then ship it over to, to a Sonos speaker, for example. You, I don't think you can do that right now, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, gotcha. So even though I haven't tried the audio switching in Android 11, I will say one thing I am very fond of, and it took me a minute to realize what it was doing, and of course I needed to read some documentation, but Android 11 now puts all of your messages or conversations at the top of your notifications. So if Mallory sends me a message and I get a notification from Robinhood, uh, if Mallory sent me a message 20 minutes ago and Robinhood notifies me five minutes ago, Mallory's message will show up above Robinhood's because uh, I presume Android expects that you'll want to respond to messages that you get before you want to respond to any other notifications. And it does work with Facebook Messenger because Nicholas's mom has been Facebook messaging me. And so that uh, stays above all my other notifications. If you want to look at your messages or Messenger messages, that's a little convoluted, but they're both in that top section above any of your other notifications. And that surprisingly is kind of nice, actually. I think they're doing that with, uh, uh, I think they have changed, if I remember right from uh, all about Android. They're using a priority notification, a an alert, yep. uh, and a silent notification or something like that. So I think you can go in and adjust that. So if you didn't want your messages from any, uh, your conversation from any messaging app to show up there, you could change that uh, alert style or promote something that's not in that list up to that list. I'm assuming that's the way it would work based off, you know, their explanation of how they're, they're breaking down what goes where based off notifications. Cause I tend to have a lot of notifications mm-hmm. silently show up so I don't get noises playing. But when I pull down notifications, this is both on for me on iOS and on Android. Uh, I pull down notification center. I see a lot of stuff at the bottom because they get a lower priority in the list uh, simply because they came in silently, which Android's interprets properly to say, hey, you're probably not really super concerned about these. Uh, Apple, on the other hand, well, it's just whatever came in last, last day and first out. <laughs> yeah, so that's probably my favorite feature. The other thing that we did mention in a previous episode when we were talking about uh, upcoming features is, and I just verified this because I hadn't noticed it because I don't spend that much time in settings, but in settings, there is a back button itself now. So you can tap on back instead of navigate up. And so I hope I'll start seeing that in other places. And then uh, the last thing that I will mention is not necessarily an Android 11 feature. It is available in messages beta that you can get access to in the play store is you can actually react to messages for other Android users who are on Android with you. Uh, Mallory, because she is not on the messages beta, gets her message back that says Michael smiled or something like that to it. Kind of like what happens if someone reacts to a message and you're on Android. Uh, And then being able to send voice messages is super convenient. And you can supposedly remind yourself of messages, but I have not gotten that to work efficiently yet. So, so Demasi, uh, we've been talking a lot, or I've been talking a lot. What are your thoughts about this rumored ARM or ARM Mac coming up? So, it, it has been my suspicion for a while, and, and a lot of people I'm not, you know, special in my thoughts on it, that Apple has been moving towards this simply because they have been beating the competition uh, with their custom silicon chips for their iOS devices. 
so it only made logical sense. And also knowing the history of Apple as a company, Apple tends to, this is one of the places where my thought processes as a person running a business, uh, and dealing with, you know, the things you have to deal with infrastructure, you know, all those sorts of things. I like to control as much of that stack as I possibly can, because then that means I'm not relying on a third party company that may or may not go out of business for higher level things. And Apple is a company that tends to operate, operate like that. Like they want their connections with other aspects where they have to go to a third party for something to be rock solid. And they want to be in charge as, of as much as they possibly can. So given the, their, their history for wanting to control everything that they possibly can in the process. Um, and frankly, just Intel's slippage on delivering new chips, uh, over the past decade on time. Uh, it seemed a logical step for them to take anyway. The rumors right now, as I know them today, as we sit here and record, are that it is possible people are speculating that it's possible they may announce an ARM Mac or they're most likely going to announce at least the transition to ARM at WWDC on Monday. However, or we'll have announced it by the time the show comes out because developers do have to get ready for that. Like they do need to give them the time to uh, learn what it's going to be about and how to recompile their apps to run on a different uh, processor architecture. The rumors have been and still seem to kind of be that the first ARM Mac we're going to see is going to be early 2021. Uh, the first one that will be available for purchase will be early 2021. And people are kind of back and forth on where they think Apple is going to go with the line. Uh, a lot of speculation as well. Why not either resurrect the MacBook, just the MacBook with the one port uh, computer that came out in 2015 um, and make that your first ARM Mac because it's, it's a low power machine. It doesn't, you know, professionals are not buying that to, you know, edit uh, video or anything like that. They're not buying it for pro level use, so it'll be perfectly fine. And ARM would give it what it really, what you really want out of it, which is decent power as well as extreme battery life. So it's either that computer, the MacBook Air gets it like they update the Air and just put ARM chips in it. Uh, and you still have a great, nice, lightweight computer that gets, you know, excellent battery life. Uh, and given Apple's history with their chip design, still gets you phenomenal power for what it is. Uh, and then there's speculation, and I kind of sort of fall on this side of the camp, that they may stick it in something like the Mac Mini first. And the reason I sort of fall along those lines a little bit, I lean more towards that than the laptops, is it's going to be the first iteration of it going into an actual production Mac that's out there in the world. And depending on the pain points uh, that they're going to have to deal with during the transition process, they may not want to drop those in the section for their most popular right. computer, which would be the MacBook Air, uh, closely followed by the MacBook Pro. Uh, the Mac Mini would give people, one, they could push the price down on the Mac Mini uh, and give people an even lower cost entry into the Mac because now they're not having to pay those licensing fees to Intel for their chips, first of all. Uh, so I would imagine they can make the computer cheaper, you know, as as far as their development and production of it, which means that could lower the price uh, for customers. And it's the sort of computer that is not a ton of people that buy them. So it's out there. People are going to buy it. 
Uh, they're going to use it. They're going to tell you about it. They're going to let you know what's wrong with it. But it's not your most prevalent Mac. Like it, it is not a high volume product like the laptops tend to be. Also think we're probably, let's say short term, two years, long term, four to four and a half, five years out from every computer that Apple sells running their own custom chips, uh, Apple design chips. Uh, because I do think it's going to take a longer time. They're going to have to give much more lead time uh, for the professional level Macs. So I'm thinking of the higher end MacBook Pros, the iMac Pro, if that continues to exist as a product uh, in the Mac Pro. Uh, and a lot of that delay in getting that there, I don't think is really going to be Apple and them being prepared chip wise to deliver the type of power that people expect. I think it's going to be Places, you know, uh, companies like Adobe and, and other high end professional uh, video and uh, photography applications having to redesign their applications to run on a different architecture. Uh, but I'm excited about it. I'm um, actually looking forward to it. I don't think I want to try to buy the first one that comes out. <laughs> You've said that before. You don't want the first iteration of something Apple produces typically. No, I don't. Not not when it's a complete redesign. Ten, tentatively, no, I don't. Because when I buy a computer, especially like I intend on keeping it for a long time, and usually the first iteration of a machine that Apple introduces as the first one has some sort of little gotcha, right? Not everybody experiences it, but they tend to have little bugs uh, and they have to work those out. So yeah, there there was stuff that was wrong with the Mac Pro when it first came out and they fixed most of that, if not all of that with, with subsequent, you know, point updates to Catalina. But, you know, there were still random issues that apparently were not experienced inside of Apple doing testing. Uh, so I am excited about it, though. I think it does two things. I do have concerns like, you know, what about VMs? Like, what what are we going to lose during this transition? I think are, are yeah. the things that I'm most concerned about. I'm not really concerned that they're going to lock down the Mac and now you're only going to be able to buy stuff out of the Mac App Store because I just don't think that's a, a, a route they would choose to take ever. They could put more barriers in the way of installing things that are not signed or not from the App Store or whatever, but I don't think they would completely remove that capability uh i don't think that's one of the uh io iosifications of mac os that we're going to see is like oh you can now only get things out of the mac app store uh simply because it doesn't make sense it just it, it does not make sense uh on a lot of levels. so you're saying you're you're thinking they're not going to make everyone use catalyst apps then no i don't i don't think so <laughs> I, I, I don't yeah, think I, mean, so. I hope not uh <laughs> Honestly, Catalyst is no Apple. Catalyst is just a stopgap. Like it's a shitty stopgap, but it's just a stopgap to be honest. Uh, yeah. Because what they're what they're really targeting and where they're wanting people to move to is Swift and Swift UI. Mm. Uh, because Swift code is you know Swift is their new uh development language that they want everybody to start using get away from objective c and swift ui is the new way to build the interface so from a developer standpoint i don't think they're quite there yet or at least i don't think it's as easy as you know they want it to be i know it's most certainly not as easy as developers as a lot of developers would like it to be but the long-term goal for Swift UI is that is going to replace the different UI builders that we've had on Mac OS and iOS. So iOS's UI builder is, I think, called UI Kit. Uh, and on the Mac is App Kit. 
And that's how that's just how you design how a developer would design the interface of the app, like building out the different components that make up the interface of the application. Swift UI is meant to replace that uh, because then it allows you to write your app once and draw out its interface and you can do the tweaks you need to do for how it's going to look on a Mac versus an iPhone. But you're only really basically having to write one app and just deal with screen size versus writing two separate apps, one for Mac, one for iOS. So, Demasi, I want to talk about affiliate marketing on our next episode. So if people are interested in that, please reach out to us. I'm going to also have a link at yourownpay.com slash DM49 to the BE101 waiting list. If you don't know what that is, head on over there and take a look because we've got some interesting things coming up in the hopefully not too distant future uh, that will help you with your affiliate marketing efforts. And we'll talk more about that uh, in the next episode. But I, I, so that leaves me with these last two topics that I have in here and I'll summarize them real quick for people who are listening. Oh, and by the way, we appreciate all the feedback we've received. Uh, it's been some, some positive and negative feedback that we've gotten about the podcast content in the last couple of weeks. Uh, one of the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> what are you guys doing? And, and stay on topic. So as hopefully you guys have seen, we've kind of been breaking things up a little bit and not going back and forth. We're staying on topic for each of the categories. So real quick, last two things I want to talk about is podcasting, which directly relates to the Mac kind of. And uh, I think Demasi wanted to talk about Zoom before we wrap this episode up. So one of the people that I've chatted with has asked me, Michael, what do I need for podcasting? And I want to give you guys a quick rundown of my setup on Windows. Uh, and if Demasi doesn't mind, he can give his set up on Mac and, and hopefully that'll give you a quick uh, perspective of the bare minimum that you need because I don't think either of us are using an audio interface right now uh, and you guys are getting what you get. So what I am doing as a follow-up to one of our really long ago episodes, it seems like it probably was a couple of years, is I am recording uh, to you guys in a I'm using a Samsung Q2U microphone going in via USB that runs through a USB mini cable that it, I've, side note, Demasi, wired through my boom arm. So now I don't got cables running all over. I've got the cable for the microphone running down the boom arm through the spring. So it kind of just all, it's like an all-in-one kit. So I can just fold up the boom arm with the microphone in it and take it wherever I need to go. So I've got a cool. Samsung Q2U microphone with a pop filter on it. And then the boom arm that I have also has a uh, windscreen on it. So that sits in front of the microphone. And then the USB cord comes out of the back of the microphone down the boom arm, which you don't need to do it that way, but that's what I've chosen to, into a USB-C dock. And the reason I'm using that is because the USB port for my Windows computer is on the left side, and I typically have my boom arm on my right side, so I don't have to have a wire going all the way over my, uh, like across my laptop. It goes into this USB-C dock, which I plug into the right side of my computer, and then that brings my audio in. So I have a pair of headphones plugged into the computer so Demasi doesn't hear himself as he's, uh, and that is plugged directly into the computer. I could plug it into the USB-C dock but i don't because it's just easier this way and i could plug it in the samsung q2u microphone but i don't because i accidentally broke that headphone jack uh, uh plugging it in and unplugging it while taking it back and forth to work one last tip that i well two last things I want to go into and then we'll transition over to Demasi is we are using a tool called Source Element Source Connect Now to talk. 
that's our VOIP or the voiceover internet protocol that lets us both hear ourselves. I'm recording in Source Element Source Connect now, and it only records my audio. It does not record Demossi's. I'm also recording in Reaper as my main uh, recording. Um, once you get into podcasting, you will find out very fast that there's nothing better than recording a two-hour-long episode and realizing that you're not actually recording. <laughs> I think it's happened to both of us. Uh, and then the last thing I want to mention is if you're a Windows user and you're using JAWS, one thing you want to do before you plug your microphone in, because you will lose your speech because Windows thinks that the microphone is a sound card, which it is. Uh, so Windows will automatically change your default audio to come out of the microphone and then your default uh, input will come from the microphone, which means you will lose speech with JAWS. I, I'm pretty sure there's a way to do this with NVDA, but I'm going to tell you through JAWS because that's what I know. If you go to the JAWS menu prior to plugging in your microphone, you go down to utilities and then sound cards. You choose the sound card that you want to use all the time. Don't choose your default Windows sound card because, again, Windows will change that default sound card to the microphone once you plug it in. I, I had to help someone with this earlier this week on Windows. Uh, and then once you've chosen your headphones or your onboard audio, then JAWS will always come out of that sound card, even if you plug your microphone in. So then you can plug your microphone in. And then if you want to, you can hit Windows B, which will take you to your uh, toolbar or your taskbar. Uh, system tray. That's what I was thinking of. It'll take you to your system tray and then you can go over to your audio uh, devices and set your default Windows audio device to whatever you want. But if you don't choose the default sound card for JAWS, then you won't have any audio because your default sound card will be the microphone. So that's a quick rundown of what I'm using. I am exploring a couple of different mixers. I can't give you model numbers right now because they keep changing. So as soon as I have a, a mixing console, I will share that with <laughs> you uh Demasi, what about you what, what's your recording setup that's funny how yeah, that yeah it is <laughs> so my setup is pretty much uh the same as michael's um with some variations so i am using a audio technica at 2005 microphone uh, i think the more current version is the atr 2100c or something uh but anyway decent microphone very much along the same lines as michael's uh so it's a usb microphone that plugs directly in uh it also has a headphone jack so i could route audio through the microphone and have my headphones plugged in and all of that i tend not to do that uh as often as i used to Mostly because one thing that happens is I will forget that that is where my audio is going. So I'll unplug the microphone at some point and then plug it back in and the Mac will say, oh, well, I see this device is back in. I'm going to mm -hmm. route the audio through there. And then I'm sitting there like, what the hell is going on uh, with my audio? So that is plugged into my computer directly. And as Mike said, we're using uh, Source Connect now to connect to each other. I am not at the moment recording inside of Source Connect now. Uh, my main recording is being recorded directly into Reaper, uh, just as Michael is. And my backup recording is being done in Audio Hijack. Uh, and that, again, as Mike said, the worst thing is to sit down and have a 
two hour long conversation and then realize you did not record. So instead of just one recording, uh, always make sure I have two. Sometimes <laughs> I have three. I think last time we yep. recorded, I actually had three going uh, just to make sure one of them has got to turn out okay is, is the deal. That's pretty much it. Uh, I will give you a similar piece of advice that Mike gave if you are on the Mac. Uh, this doesn't happen automatically necessarily. Uh, but if you want to take that extra precautionary step, uh, I would advise going to voiceover utility, going to sound and setting voiceovers output to be the built in output. And what that means is that if there are no headphones plugged into the computer, voiceover will come out of the speaker. When you plug in headphones, it will automatically switch voiceover to coming through your headphones. Uh, I think that may not necessarily be true with the newer Macs with the touch bar uh, T2 chips, uh, but that will protect you from potentially plugging in a an audio device and having voiceover automatically switch there because the Mac decides it wants to uh, make that the default system uh, output. And of course, you can always go adjust it once you're, you know, satisfied or you know exactly where your sound is coming from. I don't do that, uh, again, as much as I used to because it doesn't quite happen automatically to me anymore. But I think it's just more because of how I have my system set up and I never use the output from the mic, uh, the input. Uh, what is it? I never use the microphone as the output for the computer. So the Mac has, I guess, intelligently learned that. I shouldn't do that. Uh, however, occasionally, sometimes you may plug it in and then there's no sound. You just unplug it. Uh, but that's pretty much it. Uh, so for getting started, kind of what I tell people is, you know, start where you can. Uh, Mike started, you know, with uh, the in the box yep. Apple earphones uh, and an iPhone when he got started. Uh it's not the best sound quality in the world, but, you know, at the same time, I'm going to be honest, even if you're sitting at a computer, your headphones with the microphone on them are going to sound significantly better than the built in microphone on your laptop or desktop. So start where you can as far as equipment. Uh, the USB mics, both the ones that we have mentioned, mics, uh, Samsung QU is mic. You got Q2U. Yeah, there you go. See, I can never get those right. That is a good microphone. The Audio Technica AT2005, uh, is a good microphone. And the Audio Technica ATR2100 is also a good microphone. I cannot speak to any other USB microphones other than to tell you which ones you probably shouldn't buy. Uh, but other good USB microphones I can't really speak to because the ones I'm mentioning to you, uh, I have either used them myself. I personally know somebody is using them in the case of Mike with the Samsung. And there are tons of other people on the Internet who will tell you the exact same thing that I just said. Those are really good microphones to get started with. Uh, they're even good microphones just in general. Mm -hmm. So they're they're. You know, very good quality microphones. Uh, what you should not do, which is what a lot of people do when they want to start a podcast. Uh, don't go out and buy a Blue Yeti. Uh, that is not the microphone to do a podcast. <laughs> Please don't do that uh, to yourself or to your audience. And the reason for that is basically it's just a very noisy mic. It is a condenser mic. It picks up a lot of room noise. And I feel like for the person that says I can treat my room or surroundings enough to 
uh, cancel out all of the negatives of that, then you don't probably need me to tell you what to go buy to start a podcast right. in the yeah. first place. If you're telling me you can treat your environment, then uh, do what you think is going to be best because <laughs> you're going to do what you want anyways, typically. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But basically, another thing I'll say to get started with a podcast, I mean, you need a topic, right? You need something that you can consistently sit down and talk about on a regular schedule uh, or semi-regular or however you choose to publish it, but something you can talk about, right? Like it may not be a good idea to build a show around a specific thing that is happening today. So let's say the protest, for example, like, you know, discussing the protests or discussing COVID, like it may not be a good thing to build a show around that because eventually those things are going to ebb and go away. They'll no longer be, you know, in the public eye and people won't be paying attention or they will be over like they will have, you know, run their course. And then now you don't have anything to talk about. Now, it's perfectly fine to take a segment or a specific series of shows to talk about a specific thing and then move on to a new topic just be aware like don't say oh i am super angry about uh you know i don't know apple and how they're handling this developer and their mail app and blocking them from the app store yeah that's gonna die down in a couple of months and then what are you gonna talk about right don't make that your show uh pick a topic and if it's a newsy topic fine right then you can talk about whatever is the current news uh just be aware that like you know things change so make sure it's a topic that you're passionate about first of all because then it, it gives you a conversation the reason me and michael are able to sit down oftentimes more than you will ever know sit down without any sort of document in front of us any sort of notes any sort of outline and still produce what to me is turns out to be a pretty good show is because we're talking about the stuff that we care about. We're having basically the same sort of conversation that we would have if I just called Mike up on the phone. I was like, hey, Mike, what's going on? Uh, let me tell you about this thing that just happened. Uh, and then we start off on that and then we have a whole nother 30, <laughs> 45 minute conversation like that. That's what we're doing. The only difference is that we have started to be more consistent and intentional about writing down specific things. We want to make sure that we cover specific things that we want to actually talk about on the show uh, versus sitting down with no agenda whatsoever. But we have done it. We did it for the other than those episodes in the teens yes. uh, so a lot of the early shows were like that uh so that, that, that's that's what i have to say about getting started with a podcast uh there's much more information that you can probably find mm-hmm. out uh one by just browsing around your own pay.com mike has covered this uh topic Multiple quite times. a bit on <laughs> Uh, on, on, you know, not just what you need to start a podcast, but what are the things you need? You know, what's the foundation you need to have? So podcast hosting, all yep. of those sort of things, uh, or just reach out, you know, go to your own pay.com and, uh, you know, drop Mike a comment or, you know, or reach out to me on Twitter, because if you drop me a comment, it's going to fall into that spam of 82,000 comments that I haven't gone through yet. So I... <laughs> yeah. So yeah, probably Twitter is going to be your best bet at, Pay on P A Y O W N on Twitter. Uh, yeah, just do that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and then record if you're one last thing I want to throw in, and then if you want to transition into Zoom, then we can. Is 
Uh, don't rely on the tool you're using to connect you and your remote host or remote guest to record. If at all possible, please, each of you record on your own end and bring them into an audio editor. It'll give you a lot cleaner of editing or, or a lot cleaner of a sound. Absolutely, man. We'll have to come back and revisit this topic and explain uh, some more. Yeah. Because, yeah, Mike mentioned that he's recording in Source Connect. I am not. Uh, Source Connect does allow you to record. I have never, we have never, I, I don't think we've ever sat down and recorded using this tool and just strictly dependent on their, nope, their recording. We have used The one them. time we were going to, I got a phone call or someone came to the door and I closed my laptop before it was done downloading. And I'm like, uh, Zamasi, that was one of the episodes. Remember when I had to dub in my side of the con, yeah. the entire conversation? That was a rough one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Like yeah. Mike said, try to record your end. Uh, there are things like Zencaster, etc., that will you'll will kind of do basically what Source Connect does. It will allow you to speak to the people as well as allow them to manage recording on their side. But you always want to try to get a local recording if possible. Uh, look, though, no, to be honest, if you get started and like all you can do is use Zoom and take the Zoom recording, like eh, it's a show. I mean, people do it. Yeah. Do your yeah. best to clean up the audio. Use a tool like Alphonic. We'll link to Alphonic in, in the show notes uh, at youronpay.com slash DM49. Alphonic is an amazing tool for helping to clean up audio, especially if you're not a professional at doing audio uh, restoration slash cleanup. You're not a professional audio uh, engineer. Alphonic is an amazing tool. Uh, so we'll drop a link in the show notes for that. And the last thing I wanted to cover, I don't really know how much I want to talk about Zoom other than I just had thoughts, right? So here, here's the basic gist of the story. Mike has some, some slightly newer information that I came to, to the microphone with today, but Zoom has been working frantically since the, uh, pandemic started because they all of a sudden just skyrocketed in usage like i i believe the numbers were something like they went from like 10 million users to 300 million users or something like it was wild numbers right it's the thing you dream yeah. about as an entrepreneur when you're trying to build a service for people but geez that that was you know outrageous and as they started to deal with that influx of customers, they, you know, people, people, because people were using it now, certain people started poking around at it and started noticing little flaws and little gaps uh, in their security architecture and their functionality. Uh, credit to where, you know, credit where credit is due. Zoom did not do a whole bunch of hand waving and try to say, no, don't pay attention to that. It's okay. They immediately started taking that feedback on what they needed to do to make their platform better for security, uh, better for user protection, because uh, there are a lot of schools that were starting to use Zoom to do their classes uh, with their students. Uh, they did work on that stuff and get it turned around. I have to give them credit. Like you very rarely see a company that gets kind of caught out like they did handle it as well as they did. They did truly handle it quite well. There's been some stumbles here and there, but generally overall, they handled the process fairly well until recently. So Zoom outlined a plan uh, and they actually went out and hired a whole bunch of people as consultants and they snatched up a team of people that were doing some interesting stuff with crypto over at Keybase uh, so that they could build an infrastructure to make their their 
meetings uh, securely and truly end to end encrypted where Zoom's not managing any keys. Your whole meeting is private. Uh, you know, everything is encrypted. They can't poke at it without you giving them some permission to poke at it, things of that nature. And the paper there, there's a white paper and I will drop a link to it in the show notes for those of you who are interested to read it uh, or even read the summary of it. Uh, very detailed in how they were going to build this out in a way, because I'm going to be honest with you, this sort of dealing with encryption stuff is well beyond my capability because you're not only having to secure a connection, say from me and Michael, but from me to Michael, from me to uh, Johnny from me to Abby. And then you also have to do the round robin, right? So from Abby to Mike, from Abby to Johnny, from Abby to me, from Johnny to Mike, from Johnny to me, from Johnny to Abby, right? So everybody's connections to each other have to be directly connected, but everybody still needs to be able to see, hear, speak to each other. Uh, it's a very difficult problem, very difficult. And honestly, Zoom has said this. Nobody else is doing their encrypted meetings in the way that they're trying to do it. Nobody else is doing it. Your connections are encrypted. Don't get me wrong. Like you're encrypted. Your connections with your meetings, with anything, Zoom, Hangouts, Meet, Skype, they are encrypted. However, they terminate in the data center of whatever company runs the service and they have the decryption keys so that they can make sure everybody's connections are able to talk to each other, uh, which theoretically means that they could insert themselves in the conversation. Now, in most cases, it's not possible for them to insert themselves in a conversation uh, without you being aware of it because there will all of a sudden be a new avatar in the room. It's hmm. like, wait, who's the Google guy? Uh, where'd the Google guy come from? Who brought the Google guy? So Zoom was really tackling a big problem. But the the the, the paper that was written by some very well-respected uh, cryptography people in the industry uh, outlined a way to do it that made sense. Like it made sense to me. I could not have done it and I couldn't most certainly could not have come up with the strategy, but it made sense to me uh, from my understanding of security and, and uh, infrastructure and uh, encryption. However, Zoom made a mistake and I don't say that they made a mistake in the sense that they did something wrong. I think they mishandled the situation. The Internet was all up in arms about it because uh, during an analyst call for Zoom, the Zoom CEO said that this new high level of secure end to end trust no one encryption was going to be only for at the time enterprise level accounts. So not even the paying customers that were pro users were going to have access. It is just to people who had enterprise accounts. And his reasoning is where I think he put his foot in it. Uh, again, the Internet was super upset. I was offended uh, because I'm like, I, I don't I don't like the way he handled it. His reasoning that he gave at the time was, well, we don't want free people to have that level of encryption where we can't, you know, get into things because we want to be able to assist law enforcement. Because usually if a person is using a free Zoom account, not all the time, but people using free Zoom accounts don't have any Zoom has no way to verify who they are. So it's most likely if you're doing something nefarious and you're using Zoom to do it, say, show, you know, disgusting child pornography or child abuse videos or anything else illegal of that nature. Uh, you're probably going to have a free account because you don't want Zoom to be able to point the police directly at you, right? If somebody reports you. Sound reasoning, I call bullshit on that. Uh, frankly, because it, it doesn't make a difference. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm smarter than, you know, pederast. Uh, I most certainly believe I'm more decent than a pederast. But 
if I'm going to do something like that, I would not don't think I would use Zoom to do it, first of all. Uh, but even if that is the case and they have busted up people for doing stuff like that, I don't feel like that, that was actually the reason for Zoom making the decision that they made to provide the higher level of encryption only to enterprise level uh, or business level customers. I feel like it was a money move. It's going to be expensive to implement this system. It has already costed them a lot of money hiring people to come on and consult with them to help them figure out how to do it, let alone the costs for rolling it out and getting it implemented. So we're going to make it a enterprise business level feature because it costs money and we got to make money. He could have said that and I would have been like, all right, cool. I don't like that everybody's not getting the same level of protection, but I understand it. Right. And personally, I'm not going to have a, a, a super secret, top secret, <laughs> me and Michael's plans for taking over the world meeting on Zoom anyway. I don't care what the hell they say the encryption <laughs> is. I'm just going to use Signal because I know what Signal right? does. Yeah. Again, I wouldn't have been happy that everybody wasn't getting it. But if you'd have just said, look, this shit costs money. It's costed us money to get here to to put together a strategy for doing it. It is going to cost us even more money to roll it out. It makes no financial sense. We cannot financially afford to give it away to everybody for free. So if you are this level paying customer higher, you will have these protections because if and, and again, I feel he would have been justified there, justified for that, uh, not only because it costs money, but also typically, you know, look, the type of meetings me and Mike mostly attend on Zoom. And nothing top secret going on there, right? There's no government secrets. There's no mm-hmm. corporate secrets, you know, being discussed in these meetings. But if Apple were using Zoom or Microsoft were using Zoom or congressmen, uh, men and women were using Zoom to have discussions, well, absolutely we want to make sure nobody can break into those because they are discovered. They are discussing, you know, state level secrets. They are discussing industry trade secrets that you know allow them to conduct their business makes sense to me for that to be a enterprise level feature google g suite is very much like that like there are certain features you do not get with g suite unless you're on a certain level of account uh such as uh encryption of everything like there's some weird encryption stuff they got going on right but it's probably more difficult right i don't i don't get pissed about it i would like to have it i understand why i don't and Google didn't come out and say, oh, well, we're not giving you that on this level of G Suite because, well, you know, <laughs> you could be doing something nefarious. It's like, no, man, look, you ain't no fucking enterprise. You don't need this. Go away. <laughs> uh, and if that's what Zoom would have said, I'd have been cool. Right. I was pissed not because they didn't want to give it away to people for free, but because he gave a basically a bullshit answer on why they were not going to give it to everybody for free. Uh, I think Mike has some updates on what Zoom is actually doing now because apparently the Internet, you know, pressure made them change their mind. Mike, is that right? They, they backed so down. So I'm going to give bit. a very brief recap, but I do recommend and I've linked it in our show notes that you go take a listen to the episode titled, Hey, you can't do that, says Apple DTNS episode 3804. Uh, and. Yeah, you you know what they're talking oh, about. Oh man, they're fucking Apple with that shit. Oh, <laughs> the uh, uh, base camp uh, controversy. Yeah, yeah. yeah Anyways, yeah, we're not going to talk about yeah. that. But in that episode, Tom Merritt does a great job at explaining uh, the the encryption process and what's available now. From my understanding, now all Zoom accounts will have encryption. I don't know what level. I don't. I. I 
it's above my head, so I'm not even going to try to poke at it. Go listen to Tom's episode. He does a great job at explaining it. Uh, but the only place where there won't be encryption is when you have people who call in on a phone, which makes perfect sense because there's you can't encrypt a phone call. Well, I suppose you could encrypt a phone call, but it, it probably would go into a lot more technical uh, issues. So go take a look at your own pay.com slash DM49 uh, to get uh, access to that link and some more details about other items we mentioned Demasi. Uh, aside from that, do you have anything else you want to mention today? Reach out to him on Twitter at D A M A S H E and reach out to me at Payone P A Y O W N. Let us know what you're trying out, and uh, we will be back with episode 50 and possibly some uh, intriguing uh, excitement for you guys. We'll see. We've got to do something special for 50. You've been listening to Your Own Pay Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, visit yourownpay.com slash cast for exclusive content and to contact us today. We're eager to hear your thoughts and about how you're making this podcast your own. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. The Your Own Pay Podcast, yourownpay.com.